And firm and unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey there, V. Jay, how goes? How are you keeping cool in this uh, this heat? Yeah, it's pretty hot out there, you know? Yeah, it's, it's good, though. It's good to have that uh, coming the summertime, you know, enjoying the summer, all this kind of stuff. You've walked, slowly, you've, slowly. You've walked the boardwalk. Ways to there. Yeah, yeah. It's been pretty fun. Beach is crowded well, already? Well, the beach now, they're, uh, apparently they're closing parts of the beach, but really? we'll see how it goes. They're still, the, they're still kind of fighting it. Oh. They want to close part of the beach uh, for the summer um, due to, I believe, j- installing um, uh, some kind of jets, jet um, jettisons or something like that. Something like, I forget like exactly. spritz things? Or some, or kind of, some kind of thing with the beach. I don't know exactly, but well, you can look it up. We'll have and, to check it out. And have to... And I have to argue with that because it's pretty bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we got a great guest today, and uh, hopefully the boardwalks will still be open to, to, to walk, to run, and maybe even dance down. Yeah, so our special guest is Melissa West, who is the Vice President of Curation, Visual, and Performing Arts at the Star Harbor Cultural Center, Botanical Garden. Um, West oversees the Newhouse Center for Contemporary Art and curates exhibitions, performances, residencies, public art, screenings, and pro- programs across campus. Uh, her curata- curatorial focus is interdisciplinary artists, working insight-based um, contexts. Um, Wes has presented the work of emerging and established artists ranging from the media, from the visual, and the performing arts. She's also studied dance at Salon Ballet, Hunter College Movement Research, The Yard, and Gibney Dance Center, among other spaces. She holds a dual degree in dance and edu- in English in, from Hunter College. And in 2014, she earned a master's in performance studies from New York University Tisch School of the Arts. Uh, welcome, Melissa. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I'm glad to be here. That's a very long bio. <laughs> yeah. But I want to give you a sense it. of, yes, of uh, the varied uh, interests and uh, places. Real, yeah, places and, and areas. And Staten Island is a great place. I, I was born and raised there. Um, you know, born there and then uh, raised there for a number of years. And then I moved um, to Brooklyn. I moved around a little bit around New York City. But uh, Salon is definitely one of those underappreciated areas. I think like that's a bad rap. I 100% agree. That is pretty much what I'm constantly on my box. Um, every, every time I'm out and about, I am constantly talking up Staten Island and the amazing stuff that we have here. And I, I think... You're right. It's underappreciated. And I, I think a lot of that is because of um, just all of the stereotypes that people think of when they think of Staten Island, which is like not, not even half the story, right? So, um, yeah, it's really important to me to like advocate for artists and, and communities out here on Staten Island. Um, there's a lot of really fantastic stuff going on. Yeah, and because I, I noticed you're currently at the uh, Snug Harbor. I've, I've done something there. Lovely space with the botanical garden, right? Connected to it, um, and, yeah. and yeah, and and I guess my question is, you know, what what can we do to to make sure that you know you're getting audiences to see these art things, but a diverse population to to these uh, to these art events uh, that does that's representative of of all of Staten Island. Yeah, I think a lot of it is is spaces like this, right, where we can talk about arts and culture and uh, um, kind of shine a light on all the the really fantastic things going on. Um, I think part of it is like 
getting the word out there through social media and like all of the the various ways that we we you know share um, share the work. Um, I know we have so many things coming up, especially this time of year. Um, and a lot of it is is kind of cross pollinated from different parts of the city. So, for example, we have the Figment Festival coming to Snug Harbor in June. And Figment started on Governor's Island, and it's become this really, like, beautiful, large-scale festival of, of installations and performances and um, public art. And it's family-friendly, and it's, you know, kind of it brings in people from across New York City. Um, and there's Figments across across the, the world, actually. Um, but, the, the you know, the original one is in New York City. And so that's coming to Snug Harbor on June 4th and 5th. And so that's a way, you know, when people come to the campus for the first time, their minds are blown because we have an 83 acre historical campus with botanical gardens and a farm and these beautiful architectural icons. And a lot of times people don't even know that it, it exists, especially if they're from other parts of the city or maybe they haven't come to Staten Island um, often. And so it's really a transformative experience to actually physically go to Snug Harbor, walk through the gates, see the, the front five buildings and just experience the history and the culture and, and just um, and the nature that exists there. And so I think it's just it's really about getting people aware and like raising consciousness about these spaces, because there are other spaces on Staten Island, too. The Alice Austin House, the Greenbelt, the Conference House, there's all these old historical spaces that have contemporary culture. And so I think it's getting people here and getting people physically into the space and to experience it through their bodies and through their community. And, um, and so we're just going to keep doing that work. Yeah. And also I wanted to, uh, um, you know, kind of like contextualize, you know, that there is some like understanding of historical and, um, you know, like I think that where do these things come from? I think is like the conservative kind of thread within Staten Island. But we're, we're kind. Of, would you say it's like a a counter movement, or would you say that the people who have that conservative uh, bent uh, towards uh, supporting, like uh, historically, I think there was also a Tory area mm-hmm. during the Revolutionary War, and then uh, now it's more of a Republican kind of a mm-hmm. supportive. Would you say those people um, are? This like the demographics are changing, or how would you contextualize it historically with these yeah. with these trends? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's such a fascinating history um, because you're absolutely right. We the conference house, which is at the southernmost point of New York State in Tottenville on Staten Island, you can literally look out across the water and see New Jersey. Um, it's it was a very important geographic space for the Revolutionary War and. Um, Staten Island was, you know, kind of loyal to the to England, and like there, that sort of maybe was the the beginnings of, you know, a very kind of conservative culture um, that that's still present today. And like there, there, that is often, I think, what people their their first impressions of Staten Island are is, you know, it's a pass through to New Jersey. It, there's the the largest landfill. There's um, you know, a lot of the media, national media attention and local media attention is on the conservative through lines. And I feel like that's just not the full story. Um, there's so much nuance. And there always have been people here that I think um, kind of stand for something other than that. Um, 
Uh, but I think the demographics are definitely changing. Um, you, you know, the, Staten Island is one of the, fa- it's the fastest growing borough. Um, and so, and so, you know, we're seeing, um, racial and ethnic shifts. Um, it's becoming far more diverse than it was. Um, unfortunately, it's still painted very homogeneously in the media. Like mm. you still see that. But I just think back to 2020 when, um, you know, the, the sort of movement, um, to, uh, basically, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, um, Staten Island had one of the largest protests it's not the largest protest of its history um, against police brutality. It was, I, I live in New York and, and right by the police station. Um, I mean, there were people in the streets, like hundreds and hundreds of people in the streets, probably even, you know, over a thousand people. And marching in the streets of Staten Island to protest police brutality, which is something that didn't even really get any sort of attention um you know, outside of Staten Island's media, and it was a it was a profound moment. And so, I think there's a there are a lot of people here that are fighting for change. And even just today, there's going to be a march um, to defend Roe versus Wade. And um, and so, I, I think we just need to to speak that louder. And like, you know, there needs to be attention on the many people doing amazing work to advocate for justice and equity in our borough. Um, Because unfortunately, the politics here are different um, than many other parts of the city. And um, it's just an unfortunate tension. But you're absolutely right to like point it back to the very, very beginnings of our, um, of, of our, you know, the founding of our nation. And I don't know, it's a fascinating history. I just wish more people would be talking about this stuff. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for highlighting that and and elucidating the the protest in particular. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll maybe circle back to to Staten Island a little bit more, but want to get a little bit into your personal journey some, uh, talk a little bit about uh, dance, um, and and maybe we can even talk a little bit about how dance can be a form of uh, political protest or or dance uh, has been politicized. Um, but uh, just kind of your entrance into dance, interest into that that form of expression, um, it, it seems that it, you almost stumbled upon it. Um, could you talk a little bit about your, the kind of the origins and your connections to dance? Absolutely. Yeah. I So my relationship to dance goes back to as probably early as I can remember as a young, like a young person. I was always kind of interested in art and arts and culture. Like as a, as a kid, like I gravitated towards music or, you know, I I wanted to be an actress and there's all these ways that you find your creative self-expression. And I, my family enrolled us in the Staten Island ballet, which was just founded in the early nineties. And they were doing dance classes in, in a church basement. And I was one of the first students there and so I, I studied dance from when I was very young. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma in the dance world, and especially the classical ballet world, which is kind of where I started. You know, my my early studies were in classical ballet, and, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of critique on the body, especially for um, for young women. And you know, you have to be a certain height or a certain shape, and um, and that's kind of ingrained in you as, as a young person, and that can be very toxic. Um, I think that's something that's shifting right now in the dance world. There's a lot of talk about misogyny and, uh, and sort of the politics of the body and, 
And I think a lot of people are talking about that more and it's getting a lot more attention, but it's still pervasive, I think. And um, so I, I was discouraged <laughs> as, as an, you know, young aspiring dancer. I didn't feel like there was a space for me in that world of, you know, highly competitive, uh, classically trained dance. Um, and so I kind of moved away from that and, and got into poetry and, um, and music and kind of other ways of expressing myself. And then I, um, as when I was entering college, I, I went to Hunter College and shout out to Hunter College because that place is, was amazing. It was a, a really important foundational space for me. It really expanded my perspective to think in a sort of global context. And I had friends from Staten Island and we would take the ferry back and forth together every day. And um, I remember one of my friends was like, oh, we should take a dance class at Hunter. And um, for me, I was already kind of focusing in on other things and I wasn't anticipating to ever study dance in a serious way again. And um, so basically, essentially, my friend kind of convinced me to take this class almost on a dare. And like, I, I remember the first day walking into the Thomas Hunter Hall building, which is a very old building, has a, you know, that sort of old musty smell and um, walking through the doors of the, the dance studio and, and being asked to take my shoes off by the instructor. And I had only ever studied ballet. I really didn't know anything about modern dance or contemporary dance or, or other, you know, kind of traditional dance forms. Um, and so it was really kind of like a, a very sort of active vulnerability, like to take your shoes off and to be barefoot and to move together with other people. Um, and so I, I just started to really love that. It was a really kind of groundbreaking experience for me to, to be in the studio and to dance with other people. Um, and Hunter's dance program is an open program. So anyone from in the college can take a class. You don't have to have dance training. And um, I, I decided to, to just dive in deeply and became a dance major and was the president of the modern dance club at one point. Um, and so it really changed my life. Um, finding modern dance, which is a, a genre of dance, but then also studying other dance forms and really understanding how to use my body as a vehicle of like my self-expression and the container that it holds of, of all the, the sort of cultural and social experiences that we, we move through together. Um, yeah, it's, it's dance to me is one of the most uh, profound languages that we have as people. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got into dance. And then it kind of just, you know, kind of moved from there. I, I ended up doing a lot of work with other dancers and supporting their visions and um, started choreographing, which is developing my own ideas and, and, you know, kind of creating my own dances. And so um, for, yeah, for like the last, I guess over 10 years now, I've been creating my own work on Staten Island and really trying to advocate for dance here and create space for dancers. Great. Um, so now, that's, yeah, that's mm -hmm. wonderful. Now, where did the, uh, I guess that impulse to, to choreograph come from while you were dancing? Did you find yourself wanting to have a sense of the whole or, uh, or, or you know, like, yeah, the sense of the, the whole story um, mm -hmm. even while you were dancing? And then I'm also curious as to, you know, how you interpret, you know, what's what's good dance, you know, versus maybe, um, you know, versus like, do you, do you aspire to be as technically sound or um, just to be, um, you know, uh, 
expressing yourself to 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 the fullest. So I guess two yeah. two parts on that. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I have always as I've, I've always just had a lot in me in terms of complex feelings, like a, as a human experiencing the world. Um, I, there's so much that we process through our bodies. And so I think my desire to choreograph is really trying to, to sort of move through that kind of processing and mm. share that with other people the same way I would write a poem and, you know, not just want that to live in my notebook, but wanting, you know, there to be some kind of opportunity to connect with someone and hopefully resonate with them and, and have like, you know, sort of exchange of, of, of um, creative expression. And so I think that's sort of what drove me to, to start creating my own work. Um, I, I mean, in terms of how we define good or bad dance, like I, I try to, I try not to think in those terms um, because I do think that I think anyone can dance. I think we all as, as babies and young, like one of the first, languages we have is movement. Um, and so I think a lot of people are kind of socialized to, to think, Oh, I can't dance, but everybody can. Um, and, and you see dance being used in terms of like, you know, people with, um, going through like physical therapy or like, you know, trying to, um, you know, rehabilitate their bodies. Dance has so many different utilities. Um, but I, I feel like, what makes a meaningful dance is, is when the choreographer has something they're trying to share, really. And however that is coming out, I think, is going to be a reflection of their, their experience, their training, their, their social and cultural context. I, I personally love working with people who don't have a background in dance, that, you know, like there's the whole world of social dance where you go out and you, you dance to the music in, in a dive bar or a club or um, outside with people. Um, there's, there's so many ways that someone can connect to music and, and sound and, and to each other that for me, it's, it's really about what is, is there, is there like a deeper meaning? Is there something that we're trying to express through that? And sometimes maybe there isn't like also, and that's totally valid too. So I think it's an interesting question, um, and also there's so many different cultures where you know the the way one would define like a strong piece of art is going to look different across different cultures too. So yeah, it's, it's that's a really complicated question, um, but I just I think everyone should be you know if they are so inclined to to just move and and like experience the joy of dance. Yeah, and also I would say that. Um you know, it's interesting to think about movement in terms of like following the body or listening to the body or somatic experience as well as and then going to the music or following the music. And I'd be curious if you could elaborate a little bit on that about uh, like um, whether or not you recommend that people, when they do explore movement or they do explore dance, uh, what role does the music play in, and to what extent does selecting the music kind of come into factor uh, if there's any particular type of music that's more conducive to um, – you know, being yeah. being somatically aware rather than others. Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, question. I so the relationship between dance and music is so 
intrinsic. It's like the most, I feel like one of the most kind of delicate relationships between different kinds of art. Um, uh, because there's a real conversation happening when you're performing or dancing to live music um, in particular, like where you're feeding off of the, the sort of vibration and the rhythmic um, you know, kind of expression of the, the musician. And, and when that's done really well, it's, it's a, a really beautiful conversation. Um, I think, so the kind of dance that I, I love, um, it, you know, kind of grows out of this lineage of contemporary modern dance from the 20th century in the United States. And, uh, and there's so many different approaches to how that, that grew. Um, a lot of the dance, icons that I look to have played how to create dance kind of separately from music. So not relying on the music necessarily, or not necessarily uh, working closely with the music while you are creating something. Um, and, and then like kind of layering that on top of the choreography once it's been created. Um, so a lot of the dancers I look to like one choreographer is Trisha Brown her, her early work she did completely, I wouldn't say in silence because there was the ambient sound of the environment. She did a lot of site-specific work. So, you know, staging a dance in a park or like someone walking um, down the side of a building. Um, and so, you know, those are sort of experiences outside of the theater and you're listening to like the birds or the people walking by and like that kind of shapes the experience. But then he, there's also artists who work with popular music, like music that you hear on the radio. And I kind of feel like it's somewhere in between. I love, I love music. Um, I love music pretty much across the board. Like I don't even have, like it's very hard for me to say like, oh, what, you know, what is your favorite kind of music? It's like, I don't know. Like I love it all. Um, and I feel like sometimes you'll be inspired to, to create something specific to a particular song, which I've definitely done before. Um, but then sometimes you might want to create that to a particular song and then change the music so that it, 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 there's so many sort of approaches to how to work with music um, as a dancer. I think, yeah, you kind of have to just sort of trust that your instincts are what they are and like just follow the impulse. Um, but I, yeah, it, there's too many genres of music to yeah. name, but like, I just, yeah, it's such an important relationship. I mean, that is what you can dance in silence. You can dance to the sounds of the room, but like ultimately having that conversation between the, the musical composition and the, the, the moving body, I just think it's one of the oldest, the oldest forms of, of, of dialogue and, and, you know, conversation. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty beautiful when it's done. And also, you were talking a little bit about in your preemptive questions the uh, the theory of chance operations that was explored mm -hmm. in the work of choreographer um, Merce Cunningham and composer John Cage. Was the, is this kind of? Can you tell, expand a little bit on that? And uh, kind of this is this is to the question whether or not a specific uh, philosophy or work yeah. changed your yeah. view of the world. Um, so, like how an approach to dance or a theory of dance, I assume, mm -hmm. uh, kind of changed a little bit of what, how you viewed it. Yeah, when I first learned about the work of Merce Cunningham and John Cage, I, I had never really encountered anything like that. And for those of you listening in, um, this is 
John Cage, one of the most prolific um, musical composers of, of the 20th century, and, and his partner, Merce Cunningham, who's a, who was a prolific choreographer. And they, they were partners, um, both in their personal life and in their artistic life. And, um, you know, there, there was an interplay between the dance and music, of course, but I think one of the interesting things was they were looking at a lot of uh, kind of philosophical frameworks like, um, you know, the sort of I Ching or like Eastern philosophy and kind of applying that to their artistic practice and sort of the, trying to like let go of the ego in the development of a, of a, a creative project. And that can be very complex. Um, so there, you know, one of the sort of tenets of that is, you know, kind of creating Morris Cunningham would create his dance work independently of the musical score. And then they would sort of set up these different, I guess, um, variables. Um, and so like, you know, you sort of roll the dice and whatever number comes up, that's the, that's the sequence that you're doing tonight. And maybe it's in a different direction than it was last night. And so as the dancer, you have to be very responsive and sort of, um, entirely immersed in the choreographic material to rely on the inner rhythms and the interplay between the dancers that you're working with. And, um, it's very, it's like, it's, it's very philosophical. It's very complex maybe to talk about and watching it is a very sort of powerful experience and knowing that there's this very sort of complex framework that, um, you can approach your work is for, for me, it was sort of a, a door. It was like a portal. It was like, okay, so there are these different ways that I can, make a dance and I can take parts of this and apply it to the work that I do, but then I can kind of reject parts of this as well, because I don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to one kind of way of creating art. Um, but their, their work was very kind of, I think, um, right around the time where a lot of Eastern philosophies were coming into the, the visual and performing arts world and in, in the western context so it was it's sort of very much of its moment i think but definitely a lot of artists still look to that as a, a point of inspiration right that was a lot sorry no no, <laughs> no, no. Like taking it in <laughs> yeah taking it as well i was trying to connect to um a couple of things in there like the idea of like i think you said something about losing your ego or like kind of becoming mm-hmm. like kind of submerging into the moment yeah submerging and that was kind of connects a little bit to um, and as you were saying when I was asking about your most valuable failure and kind of goes to the philosophy of, you know, kind of like failing every day. And then if you talk a little bit about that and a little bit about how um, in your practice, you're able to just as a practitioner be able to um, navigate, you know, when you think about success and failure and that's something that comes up in the show a lot, you know, perceptions of success and failure um, and our relationship to that. Um, we just touched on a little bit about that with uh, what's good and bad dance and you give a comment on that, but also in general about success and failure. Uh, you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. I always think that's a really interesting question that comes up, especially in the, like the professional world. Like I, like I'm, I work in a nonprofit arts organization and, um, I, I read a lot about the nonprofit culture, which is very, um, very toxic. And, you know, there's a, a lot of, uh, talk right now about how people work and shifting paradigms around work-life balance and all this stuff. But I think something that comes up in that is, is like, you know, we're all very invested in the work that we do. And so things don't always go right. Um, 
But I really do think that like the question of failure for me is like a false, a false one. Um, because I, I, I think like, how are we defining that? Like I, I don't look back on my life and have any sort of major like regrets. I mean, there's always stuff that I would, you know, in hindsight, you're like, Oh, I would have done that differently. Or, uh, maybe that didn't go so well, or that was really stressful. But I, I do think that failure is a part of everyday life. And I think it's sort of a, a mundane practice and like shifting away from like the sort of like highly capitalist, like, you know, attitude of like, this is urgent. I have to do this thing perfectly. I just think that we need to shift away from that. Um, so I try to approach those experiences as like lessons or reflection. Like I, I do a lot of self-reflection. So, you know, you learn from it. Oh, that, that set up for the equipment didn't go really well this time, but we're going to learn from that stressful experience and try to do it better next time. Um, and I think usually people have compassion and, and there's um, an understanding. And so we're all human and we're all just kind of like, on this journey together. I don't know if that's like a little too, um, kind of, um, sort of yes. wishful thinking, uh, but I, I, I think that, yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. Cause it feels like with nonprofits, we have to justify our funding and we have to like come yeah. up with numbers and then, and realize, mm -hmm. you know, X number of people came and they all had a great experience. And it's like, it's always has to be such a pressure for funding to be like number bodies in the room and all this kind of yeah. thing, you know, um, statistics and how many people did you, um, you know, and statistically like rather than yeah. quantifying that quality of service and, and, uh, and looking at it through different lenses, there's such a, uh, pressure, uh, there. And also know? like there's a, a relationship between your, like your role, like, like I think so many of us working in a nonprofit space, like we identify in a lot of ways as the work we do, we care about it. There's a lot of meaning making and in, in the work that the chosen field that you go, that you evolve into, um, which may or m may or may not be a little bit more of a pressurized experience than if you're like working a job because you're, you know, it, there's a means to an end. Um, uh, but so in that, I think a lot of times you almost kind of forget like, Oh, this failure is not a reflection on me as a person. But like this is just the the situation as it unfolded in this moment, and so I think like taking a step back and like trying to be like, okay, well, I am not I am not my job. Like there is a separation, um, which I think can be really hard for those of us who who work um, in fields that we're very very passionate about, um, which is a whole conversation happening right now, and like in terms of labor. Um, but I think it's like just trying to learn from. The experience and, and we're growing every day so those, those like what people might consider a failure and like oh that that's really not a failure that is a just a daily experience like that we get to define right like who, who's defining that failure so i think it's all part of the, the perspective and like how you're framing it right yeah. uh, I, I wanted to flip to the other side of the coin of that of, of what's uh, your opinion on kind of dance competitions or dance uh, reality shows and um kind of uh, yeah. those those shows on television and how what that does for dance or I mean I, I will say you know I find some of the, the world of dance you know entertaining for sure but how does that fit into the larger context as compared to to nonprofit work as well yeah that's a, an excellent question um, well I will say this um, 
what shows like that do, like I'm thinking of So You Think You Can Dance or whatnot, um, like they do elevate dance as a form of entertainment, but they, they bring it to a really like broad audience. And so you're able to like, you know, there might be some people that maybe didn't appreciate dance or were able to then like see the, the labor behind it and see the thought process behind it and in that sense, I think it can be informative and it can be entertaining at the same time. Um, I always felt very alienated by a lot of those uh, kind of competition-based dances, uh, sort of that whole world. I always felt very alienated by that because for me, I see it as a form of self-expression and a creative endeavor and an artistic platform. And so sometimes the world of competition dance can feel much more like a technically driven um, space and uh, I also go back to when I was studying classical ballet and there was a lot of body image issues and I think that the world of competition dance can be very similar like there's there's a, a toxic culture around that that I think is very much driven by like capitalist uh, structures and I, I personally do not um, like I do not feel comfortable in those spaces. I think there are, there's always a possibility that someone who comes through that world will, will hopefully like if they want to pursue a career in dance, that they will broaden their perspectives to see the many, many other shapes and forms of, of uh, movement outside of that world. But yeah, it's, it's, it can be a little toxic. However, I don't want to dismiss it because I think, um, you know, there's, there's a community around that too. <laughs> So um, it's just not necessarily a community that I've inhabited very, very much in my lifetime. Sure. So, so if we even take, you know, like uh, you as choreographer and you're working with dancers, though, so you wouldn't prescribe with there be, you know, a particular diet for the, doc, the, for the, for the dancers to, uh, to have or uh, mental, other mental health practices that will allow them to not necessarily perform at their optimal level, but to perform in the most... Um, safe as well as free free way do those things come into mind i guess when choreographing um kind of keeping in mind all right you know we don't want an injury to happen right we or we want somebody to feel that they are the most free before something what what type of mental health practices might might be most conducive to that yeah and this is really coming up quite a lot in the dance world um these days i i think many choreographers and i would you know, aspire to be among them. Um, you you sort of want to establish a communal sort of open platform for your dancers to to feel like supported and to be able to communicate when they you know when they they are feeling a certain way about you know their their body or their you know their ability to to do what what's you know on on the table. Um, I think. What many folks do is they create um, like a community agreement uh, with the dancers and, and try to um, establish the the room and like what's expected in the room and that's a two-way street. And so giving the dancers that space to, to voice what they need and, and what's working and what isn't, I think is really important. Um, I, I also think it's really uh beneficial and I know a lot of people work this way where you set up like a daily practice when you are in rehearsal like that starts with maybe a warm-up or you know a space to 
move together and maybe talk about the work. Um, and so there's, there's a, a, like a, an ongoing exchange happening. It's not just like a choreographer coming into the room and, um, you know, dictating what happens in that space. I think that that's a very old paradigm that not many people work in anymore in, you know, Western contemporary dance. Um, although I can't really say that for sure. I think what there is a power dynamic though inherently in that process. And so a lot of people, you know, kind of shift to a more collaborative or collective model. Um, I honestly haven't been in the studio with dancers since before the pandemic. Uh And I think that the way I would move into a a rehearsal process now would be very different than how I did in 2019. Mm -hmm. So um, that's also something the pandemic really, really disrupted the entire performing arts world in addition to all the social upheaval that is still happening. Um, And so I think over the last two and a half years, there has been a lot of discussion around labor and um, power dynamics in the dance world and in other cultural spaces. And um, I don't profess that there's been any real, real profound progress because I still think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But um, it's, it's sort of like showing up and, and just being present in the room together and having that sort of communal agreement to, to create a work together. Um, and that takes a lot of trust. Thank you. Eyes on my own. This is the Truth to Power Show. I'm ready for Brooklyn. We're here with co-host Scott Raven and special guest Melissa West. Um, so now we're going to, I want to move the conversation a little bit into the, some of the um, themes of the show being uh, the, as the Truth to Power Show. A lot of times there's um, uh, resonance there for me with empowerment um, and how we can discover truth or discover something to be true and uh, how it can empower us and our communities. And we've talked a lot about that in the past um, 40 minutes or so. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. But I went to see, um, like, kind of keying on uh, and kind of enunciating a little bit, um, you know, something you consider the true that you believe is undervalued in our society. And we talked a little bit about that. Um, and, and in what way can uh, civic truths act as uh, – how can how can the spirit truth or another truth act as a empowerment? Can you clarify that question? <laughs> yeah, so basically, like something you consider true. So you're talking a little bit about, um, you know, like uh, um, accessibility of arts and culture mm-hmm. as being like a, a bedrock for building up on um, something that's true in our society, something that's true or true for you personally. Um, so when we think about truth is like, you know, yeah, defining that in and of itself is a big discussion. But uh, yeah. we, so we've talked a little bit about some truths uh, in this conversation about, you know, relying on the body for somatic awareness and how that can build up on what's true. Um, so maybe we can discuss a little bit about how, um, you know, kind of the, the structures of arts and culture as being a, a part of our society and how that can um, – how that can be like made a little bit more paved a little bit more. So then we're, we're, you know, during the pandemic too, it's like everyone is relying on um, during the times we were in quarantine, especially relying on all this entertainment value that people kind of dismiss entertainment, but rather it was actually, you know, the bread and butter of keeping us sane and keeping us alive, you know, to keep our mental health yeah. good. So it was like a little bit about arts and culture and how um, that should be accessible for all. Yes. I think that 
arts and culture is a public good. And um, I think so what that means to me is that arts and culture should not exist within the confines of uh, an economic, you know, kind of driven structure. Like it should exist outside of that. Like um, arts and culture is one, like, you know, talking about dance and music, but also all of the other, like, you know, poetry is like an oral form. Like these are some of the oldest traditions that we have as people as humans. Um, and so how are we protecting that history and those traditions, um, as we have found ourselves in such a commodified culture, um, I think is something that's very fragile. Uh, you know, it's, it, there's a lot at stake and, um, I am not particularly professing any sort of, like, I don't know how we shift away from this, honestly, because this is something that I feel like is so complex and, like, there's so much about, like, the climate crisis and, like, the racial and uh, social disparities that so many communities face. And I think part of that, like, is just the way our society is, is predicated on capital, capital. And I, I just don't, it's so, it can be very disheartening, but I, I always try to go back to the, to the culture and to the arts as like the, the sort of counterpoint to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think a lot of it has to do with community and sort of finding communal spaces that maybe exist on the margins of, you know, you, you brought up like, um, so you think you can dance and like those kinds of like, uh, I don't know what you call them, competition dances. Like, like that to me very much fits within like a commodified view of dance. But like on, on the fringe of society, there are people who are making dances in parks or making dances in their living rooms. Um, and so many of us were doing that during COVID. And so it's like, how do you find points of connection in that and, and community? Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of spaces like this, right, where it's like a free, you know, it's a, a nonprofit radio station that's giving space to communities to talk and to engage in discourse. Like, those are important. And I feel like so much of that is at stake because of funding and because of the way these, you know, the way the nonprofit sector is set up. It's predicated on on you know, private donations and the public funding and public funding is always at risk on a national and local level. And so I I think really there needs to be a moment or a reckoning where, and I thought, you know, I think we all kind of thought that 2020 with um, the, the mobilizing around Black Lives Matter and like the many like social justice, like, emergent, you know, not even emergent because they've been around, but like these groups that that finally got a national spotlight. I, I, you know, I think a lot of us had hoped that this would be the time, but so much of that has not, not manifested in real change. Mm. So I I don't know, (laughs) sort of a circular response. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking about community, I was thinking a little bit about uh, traditional dance as well. And I guess Mm -hmm. dance as it, as it intersects with, uh, with religion and, you know, different communities forming, Uh, you know, I guess I'm Jewish, you know, the the horror being Mm -hmm. such an integral part of any uh, Jewish wedding or, or, or occasion Um, and how these dances 
are, uh, I mean, they can be inclusive, but sometimes exclusive. Uh, should mm-hmm. somebody teaching these dances be of that uh, sect, or how can we make these traditional experiences more inclusive as well? Yeah, I think some of that might be like, and I am not going to profess to be like at all a specialist in um, in you know traditional cultural dances, um, but I think it's sort of like maybe moving, well, I think absolutely that folks who are, you know, kind of have a real relationship to that particular form of dance, and I'm not going to say that they have to necessarily be a part of that culture, because I, you know, I feel like that, that there's, there's a lot, a lot of complexity there. Um, But I, I think moving, maybe moving some of the, the teaching into more um, informal or, less traditional spaces may open up platforms for people to connect. So thinking about how like during the pandemic, so much of dance moved online to zoom and like, hadn't really, that hadn't really been a big part of the the dance world before, but I think it probably opened up a lot of access to people who maybe wanted to explore a certain kind of movement, but they weren't able to, to like leave their house or to go take a class somewhere. Or maybe they were too afraid to, or they were self-conscious or all the, the many different reasons. Um, so I think, you know, I am also thinking of young people who maybe are not like necessarily wanting to go to, you know, take traditional dance class in their culture. They'd rather be out in, you know, hanging out with their friends or whatever. So how do you kind of move it into other spaces? Um, I think, the real importance is is to just be really respectful of the of the tradition that you're working within and and to have a real kind of cultural understanding and relationship to that. Right. Um, have you had any experience working, I guess, with um, dancers, maybe with with physical limitations or uh, other uh, different uh, ways of presenting, whether dancers uh, that may be missing limbs or uh, that sort of thing, and um, kind of their space in 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 dance not as a choreographer but as a curator um i worked i i I did not curate the show but i facilitated the opportunity for an exhibition um guest curated by margaret chase and malenka berenkolk and they they worked at snug harbor and they created a beautiful exhibition in 2018 or 19 um that highlighted the work of uh, of artists who are disabled and um, it was across different media, but there there were there were performances by the Heidi Latsky Dance Company as a part of that, and that's a, an integrated dance company that that works with um, folks who have disabilities and and um, folks who do not. And so, um, I I think that that work is really important, and um, access in the dance world is an ongoing challenge, mm-hmm. and um, you know, there are people doing that important work like Heidi Latsky and many, many other uh, dancers, um, Jerron Herman. There's it, it, there's a lot of space right now being intentionally created for, for that discourse, and I think that's really, really uh, important. Great. Thank you. Um... And also, I guess I, I will say, like, just from another perspective, I... I co-organized the Staten Island Dance Project, which was originally called the Creation uh, Dance Collective, with Melly Eshenik and Alyssa Rapp, and we—it's a very intergenerational dance mm. space, and so a lot of times, like we are very welcome, welcoming to 
people who are not necessarily traditionally trained dancers. Like you can just be someone who really loves dance and social dance. And a lot of times we work with people from across different age ranges. And so that also requires a certain level of, um, you know, kind of practice and intention um, because not everyone is going to be able to, to do all of the things that, you know, a sort of, you know, traditionally trained dancer might. And so how do you kind of break that, that, down so that people feel comfortable and that they feel welcome and, and part of the part of the exchange. And so um, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot happening in the dance world right now about access and inclusion and sure. it's ongoing work and um, it, it needs more needs to happen, uh, frankly, to, to really get us to a place of equity. Right. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. Any uh, particular, I guess, if we, talk film-wise or, or film dance pieces that might have resonated with you uh, through the years or that you would direct people to, maybe even a lesser-known one, uh, a lesser-known one, but also one that, that, you, uh, that you've connected with. Yeah, um, so I love the work of Maya Darren. Maya Darren was um, one of the, I would say, the progenitors of, of what is considered dance film or screen dance. And uh, she was creating work in the 1940s um, as a filmmaker, uh, which was pretty, you know, important. She's probably one of the first real uh, women uh, filmmakers out there. Um, And she doesn't really get too much attention, although there, you know, if you're in the dance world or in certain spaces, you, you're, you'd be probably familiar with her work. But um, she created a piece called Atland, which I think was 1946, maybe. Um, and it's this really kind of interesting short dance film. And she's kind of using her body and moving through different landscapes. Um, uh, I think one of the landscapes is a beach. Um, and it's all about, like, she's moving through the different, like, kind of psychosomatic spaces of her mind, but it's all kind of unfolding in this really kind of surreal assemblage of images and spaces. Uh, it's, her work is really cool. Um, I, I also love the work of Agnes Varda, who, um, who was one of the, I guess, under un, unsung heroes of the French new wave. Um, also a woman and probably why she hasn't gotten as much attention as she deserves. Um, one of the first films I ever saw by her was called The Beaches of Agnes, which she created. She was probably like 87 when she created this film. Um, and I saw it at the ISD, I think. Um, like, this was like right when I was coming out of college. And it's just this beautiful. She's working in, a, in like the French New Wave tradition. So it's very kind of like mo- there's a lot of montages and it's um, kind of a nonlinear look back at her life as a filmmaker and her relationships, like her husband was a a very like well-known filmmaker and she was hanging out with Truffaut and um, Godard and all the, you know, all the big, you know, artists of the French new wave in the 1960s. And it's just such a beautiful film with like archival footage. And, um, but the storytelling is really important because she's, She's, she's talking about her life and um, at the point at the end of her life, like that, that self-reflection um, of, of her time on this earth. And so it was really, it's really beautiful. I'd recommend those films for anyone who is interested. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, huge fan of the French New Wave. And I thought she yeah. recently had a documentary that was out, Var- Varda oh, by Agnes or something that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, that mm-hmm. did a whole overview of a lot of her, her material. 
Okay, so I, I do a couple quick things. Um, you know, just to remind listeners, we're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, independent listener-supported radio. This is the Truth to Power show. Um, radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us continue to stay on air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We have a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofilking.org slash donate. If you'd like to give while shopping on Amazon, go to radiofilking.com slash Amazon and register at radiofilking as your Amazon Smile charity. Therefore, every time you shop, a portion of your purchase will benefit Radio Free Brooklyn. Then if you're listening in front of your computer, <coughs> please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone or Android. Available the App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. You can listen in on the many different programs available, um, you know, kind of streaming on Radio for Brooklyn's platform as well as in archives. On uh, We use Megaphone. So when you, click on, uh, when you click on the app, you'll be able to navigate the app Looking at a specific show, you click on the um, the show's um, archive, and it'll show you a list of the previous episodes that have been archived, and you'll be able to uh, listen in a few of the older shows, a few of the older episodes. So we have about five more minutes left, um, so we can go over a little bit um, about uh, what's coming up for you as far as uh, mm-hmm. performances or things that people should look out for or things they should follow, and then uh, we can start to close with some closing comments, yeah. Yeah, I just want to say I am so happy I was able to talk with you all for a full hour. I was like, yeah. am I going to have anything oh, to say? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I want to give a shout out right now to the current exhibition that we have at the New Herald Center for Contemporary Art at Snug Harbor. Um, we have worked with a, a collective, a local arts collective called Queer Van Colt. Uh, over the last like six months or so, they've been spending a uh, live-work residency time at Snug Harbor, building a site-specific exhibition. The exhibition is called Revelation, and it's in the historic main hall gallery, which is the oldest building on campus. And the exhibition explores um, a sort of queerness as a, as a, you know, kind of moving our societal notions of queerness to to one that's sort of celebratory and kind of intrinsic. And um, it's a site-specific show, so there's a lot of, like, interesting artifacts from Snug Harbor. Like, um, we have these old pews that are in one of the rooms where you can sit down and watch some films playing on loop. Um, the show is, is about the sacred and profane. It's about queerness. Um, and it's got 26 amazing artists who are all queer artists from across the city, all, you know, kind of emerging, like, on, on the, you know, just sort of coming up. And um, we're really excited about this exhibition. It, it's open through July 24th. Um, and we just the other night had a drag show, which was in partnership with the Pride Center for Pride Fest. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of performances and, and art uh, happening over the next two and a half months in that exhibition. And I think the best way for people to, to find out more is to, if you're on Instagram, to follow at Snug Harbor CCBG and at the Newhouse Center, which is our arts uh, Instagram. Um, and then, of course, like you can always look up snug-harbor.org for information on the entire campus. And there's so much going on. Uh, 
if you like want to buy vegetables from the farm, we have a farm stand every Saturday and there's a lot uh, happening. I mentioned the Figment Festival coming up. So um, yeah, I would say just follow us on Instagram and, and stay tuned because there's literally too much to mention. <laughs> Great, so exciting. Yeah. Oh, and then I guess if anyone's interested in my 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 choreographic work, um, you can go to mwestdances.nyc. Um, I don't necessarily have anything I'm ready to announce for this year just yet, but I am feeling I'm feeling a, a resurgence of mm-hmm. creative expression um, as we like hopefully dig ourselves out of this pandemic world. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, uh, inspiring and thoughtful conversation i thank you for your time melissa thank you thank you yes thank you and as tell listeners this is in the truth to power show actually in uh, august i'm going to be downscaling my involvement because uh, i'm going to be moving into um a mental health counseling practicum in the fall um but uh, i hope people continue listening till then and then hopefully we can pass the show off to another host in the fall we're still trying to figure that out so people can write to truth to power show at gmail.com uh, to talk a little bit about that, talk back, give a little feedback about the show, the future of the show, tell me what kinds of what, what your favorite episode was, and all this kind of thing, and then we can talk a little bit more uh, with the listeners, get a little feedback from listeners. Also on on, on uh, Facebook, I have a of a fan page and Instagram. We have a Instagram Truth the Power Show. You can always write to one of those addresses as well. Uh, to the listeners, can this write to those addresses as well to give some feedback on what, where they hope the show will go, the direction of the show. So thanks so much. Uh, I believe, I'm not sure if the next show is coming in. They should be coming in in a few minutes, but um, we have a, a, a great lineup on uh, Ready for Brooklyn. So thanks so much for being here. I guess we can, uh, do you have any like um, ending thoughts or ending comments? And then we can uh, close out. Are you asking me for ending thoughts? Yeah, if you have any ending <laughs> thoughts or, or if Scott has any ending thoughts, <laughs> any, uh, tying, tying together thoughts or anything that, anything else you want to say? I would just say, like, make make your art, like, follow yeah. your self-expression, whatever that means to you, and that's going to grow and change over time, but share share your work, share your truth, and um, and I think everyone should be doing that with each other. Yeah, I think really, I think dance really is great because it's like, it really the, that cultivates that body awareness, and it's so, so important today's day and time to, to connect to the body, connect to the root chakras, connect to the... Um, to the root of the body so that we know where we're coming from in each moment, that mindfulness of like how are we feeling, checking in, all this kind of thing is all uh, is all kind of practiced in this art form and, and should be practiced in life as well. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thanks so much, guys. All right, we'll head out. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.